Welcome everyone to Roger's List. This is the podcast where I'm watching every single one of Roger Ebert's great movies with a rotating cast of amazing co-hosts. I'm Rudin Tootin Varman Steve Guntley, and my guest today broke out of prison and into society in the same day. I didn't even think you could do that. But it's Luke Ramsworth Terry. How you doing, Luke? I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm I am a reformed man and I'm ready to uh, get a job just to go straight to see my kids. <laughs> that's good i'm glad i'm glad you're taking those steps finally uh so Long happy to coming. have you on here so excited uh, uh luke is my old college roommate from a million billion years ago and uh we've shockingly never been on a podcast together despite both of us being regular podcasters and i don't know how that has happened but i'm glad that we're correcting that finally not me as well this is yeah i very happy to be here and ha happy to be talking about this film so thank you for Thank you for the invite. Absolutely. The film we are talking about today is Stagecoach. This was released February 2nd, 1939, directed by John Ford, and it stars Claire Trevor, John Wayne, Andy Devine, John Carradine, Thomas Mitchell, and several others. So we uh, this is actually our first time discussing like a proper Western on this show. Last week we discussed El Topo, which is a, an acid Western, which is about as experimental and weird as a Western can get. But this one is kind of your prototype. This is kind of the movie, whether you've seen this or not, I think this is the movie you think of when you think of American Westerns to some degree. Because all of them that have been successful in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, built off of this movie. Like, this is a cornerstone movie for the Western genre, so it's incredibly important historically. Uh, Luke, you had signed up to talk about this one quite a while back. Uh, why did you want to talk about Stagecoach? This was one, uh, as a little bit we were talking before starting the recording, uh, when we were roommates in college, there was a professor mm. there, uh, Dr. Paul Edwards, who my final two years, he was teaching a genre and theater, genre and film class, and I was his TA for those final two years. And he always had a unit on uh, the, night, of course, the golden age of Hollywood and everything, but also about 1939 being probably the most seminal year in Hollywood history. And he would show this movie, he would show Stagecoach. He wouldn't show Wizard of Oz, he wouldn't show Gone with the Wind, because of course he would say, you know, chances are you've seen those uh, a couple of times, if not multiple times in some households. You know, of course, it's annual viewing to watch Wizard of Oz or something once a year for... I don't know if there's a holiday commemorate that, but I know some people <laughs> who do, who, you know, it's an annual tradition to also watch Gone with the Wind. My wife grew up in the South and she knows people who watch it every Christmas. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, that's an interesting tradition. All day uh, Christmas, I imagine. Yeah. <laughs> but this one, it's, it also is one that he made points of saying that if there's certain cliches that you think are overdone or that you've seen multiple times in, not even just in a Western movie, but in any American film, most likely they came from this one. Mm -hmm. The outlaw trying to go good, the hooker with the heart of gold, the drunk doctor, the reformed gambler, uh, the gentleman southern gambler to kind of, you know, there's, and the cowboys versus Indians and literally the cavalry coming to save the day. Yeah. It all kind of stems from this one, from this one movie. It's kind of one of those movies sort of like uh, when you go back and look at it happened one night and you're like, wow, mm. this is just hitting all the romantic comedy tropes. And it's like, no, no, it's inventing all the romantic comedy tropes. And that's what oh, Stagecoach exactly. is doing as well. It's inventing this idea of the Western and kind of shaping in a lot of ways our perception of what the American West was, mm -hmm. which is a really interesting like way to put on this very sprightly 90-minute movie. Uh 
So let's dig into a little bit of uh, uh, talking about the director here, John Ford, a guy who's going to come up on this show a couple of times. Uh, because John Ford is generally considered alongside maybe John Huston and Howard Hawks as the greatest director of American Westerns. He's someone who just kind of found that niche and really got it. Uh, to this day, he holds the record for most Best Director wins. He's been nominated five times and won four of those. And he has uh, several movies that are going to appear on this list. We're going to talk about The Searchers. Uh, we're going to talk about, um, oh God, what else is on here that we're talking about of his I think uh, My Darling Clementine is on here as well. Uh, Grapes of Wrath, I think, is on here. Grapes so, of Wrath, yeah. Yeah, lots of lots of movies to talk about. And John Ford is also cited as kind of a direct influence by filmmakers like George Lucas, by Steven Spielberg, by Martin Scorsese, and even some contemporaries like Orson Welles, who mm -hmm. claims that Stagecoach is the most perfect American film ever made. And he says he watched this movie 40 times while he was writing Citizen Kane. And he actually has one of my favorite quotes when he talks about his favorite directors. Orson Welles said, I think you go to the old masters. And by that, I mean, John Ford, John Ford, John Ford. Yeah, uh -huh, exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, which is kind of weird to think that by 1940, he was already considered an old master. But uh, so John Ford, he was born John Feeney in 1980 or in 1894, not 1984. He's younger <laughs> than me. <laughs> Science <Yeah>. fiction. <laughs> Uh, he was born John Feeney in 1894 in Maine. Uh, he started in entertainment early. He moved to Hollywood at age 20 because he was following in the footsteps of his brother, Francis Ford, who was, a at the time, a successful Hollywood actor. Uh, his first job was actually as a production assistant, and he took on uh, a, a, he, his first on-screen appearance was as a Klansman in Birth of a Nation. So that's, oh, a, little, wow. that's a little yikes, but uh, that was a huge <laughs> movie. And that's another one we're going to get to on this show that I'm dreading. Uh, so he started directing movies in 1917, and uh, during the silent era, he directed more than 60 movies, although most of these have been completely lost. His first talkie was a movie called Mother McCree, which, again, is lost now, and he quickly became this journeyman director. You know, he was hired in by studios to just kind of churn out everything. You know, we think about how few, um, like... If you think about how many movies get released in like 2020, or uh, that's a bad example, how many movies get released in 2019, <laughs> you have to multiply that by like a factor of five for like 1930s film production. It was much cheaper. It was much faster. The movies were shorter and more direct. And like they would show short films as kind of full features, you know. So that's kind of also where the an a, right and at like a double feature matinee where an A movie was released as this, you know, the second build one, but there'd be a precursor, a B movie before it because they were exactly. just so easy to churn out and easy to produce. Yeah, and and John Ford kind of started in the B movies and then started slowly working his way up through the system. Now, he first started coming to critical critical acclaim with a 1935 film called The Informant, which is a drama about the Irish Revolution. And that was nominated for Best Picture, and it earned him his very first uh, Best Director nomination and win. He won for that movie. Uh, and then he had a string of smaller hits after that that eventually culminated in Stagecoach in 1939, which was his biggest and most acclaimed film to date. Uh, it was a huge box office and critical success, and it is credited with kind of revitalizing the Western genre. There had been Westerns before this. There had been many of them. But the the genre was basically dead at this point. You know, it was nobody wanted to watch it. It was it was, you know, it was post Batman and Robin for the superhero movie. Boom. It was like <laughs> nobody wanted to touch these because it's just it's been done to death and everyone's tired of it. But this kind of helped revitalize the entire genre and made it the dominant film genre for the next 20 years, at least. 
Um, so uh, he followed this project up with a 1940s beloved adaptation of Grapes of Wrath, which he got his second Best Director win for, and he got his third win just the following year for 1941's How Green Was My Valley, which is uh, the movie that won Best Picture over Citizen Kane, interestingly enough. So oh, interesting. I wonder how, uh, I wonder how, I don't, I don't think Wells would have been too mad about that, maybe, but... <laughs> I don't know. Have you seen How Green Is My Valley? I have not, unfortunately, no. But I'm gonna. I may have to change that now because I'm interesting timing of that, especially the ma- the, the apprentice did not quite become the master. Yeah, not quite. Not quite. It's. I think it's kind of a. It's definitely a lesser movie than Citizen Kane. But I, mm. I also can't imagine that Orson Welles would be too upset about it. Oh, I don't think um, so either. S- so after that movie hit, it won Best Picture. It was a huge deal. Uh, Ford kind of surprised everybody by being one of a handful of Hollywood filmmakers to sign up for the war effort. He went over uh, during World War II, and he was put to work by the State Department to make documentaries, uh, just kind of using his best skills. So he kind of went to all these different theaters of war. He was at the Battle of Midway, where he uh, was shot. He, he took a, a bullet in the arm, uh, an injury that he never fully recovered from after that. Oh, wow. I, I did not know that. Wow. He was also shooting the footage of Omaha Beach on D-Day. He was uh, kind of behind all of the soldiers and like uh, uh, posting up uh, in like the last wave, getting shots of the bloodiest battle of World War II. So Jeez. pretty intense. Uh, his first film when he came back, incidentally, was a movie called They Were Expendable. And that was kind of his uh, his mm. film talking about life on a PT boat during the war. Um but yeah, after he got back from the war, he continued to enjoy an acclaimed, successful career. Uh, he won another Oscar for directing The Quiet Man in 1951. Wonderful. And then he movie. had a bunch of hit films called like the My Darling Clementine and Fort Apache and Donovan's Reef. And most significantly, probably, is The Searchers, which is going to mm. be another episode that we really dig into. Uh, he slowed significantly in his later years, but he still worked steadily. And in the end, he directed more than 140 movies throughout his career. <laughs> before his death in 1973 at the age of 79. Now, as a director, he's a, and as a director and as a person, he was a little bit uh, esoteric, you could say. Uh, he wore an eye patch <laughs> uh, everywhere. Uh, I don't think he needed the eye patch, but he wore it. Uh, he, he had a reputation of kind of bullying his actors, but he also had a reputation of using the same actors over and over and over again. He had a stock company of characters, especially John Wayne, Henry Fonda, Maureen O'Hara, all these different people mm-hmm. that he went back to over and over and over again. And they kept coming back too, out of a sense of loyalty to him. There was a story I read about Ford uh, that's been verified by a couple people about uh, later in his career, he was already very successful, very wealthy, and he was leaving a, a Hollywood restaurant when an out-of-work actor came up to him and begged him for $200 just to help get him back on his feet. And Ford like threw him to the ground and screamed at him and berated him and said, how dare you do that to me? And then he left. But after he left, he had his assistant come back, uh, help the man up, give him a check for $1,000 and put him in connection with an acting agent and, and helped kind of land him uh, some some more roles and some more steady work. Hmm. So there was this weird kind of conflict where he had these walls up. He didn't want people to know that he was kind of like a sweet, sensitive guy. And so he acted like a like a hard-drinking Irish bastard for the rest of it, for most of the time. Well, and he was a very, uh, you know, not to turn it too political in these political times, spoiler yeah. alert that we're recording, but he was also, while a lot of his contemporaries were very much conservative, he... Mm-hmm. 
uh, I didn't find this out myself until reading up on him uh, in preparation for the episode, was quite progressive and quite liberal for yeah. the time period he was in. I mean, he greatly admired John F. Kennedy and said he, it, he was one of his favorite presidents. And I forget the story, but I know that at one point he was doing a film and Ward Bond and John Wayne, who were very, very conservative Republican diehards, were complaining about politics, complaining about FDR, and he said something along the lines, uh, John Ford did, saying something along the lines of, you know, you all made your best films and you've done your best work under FDR. So It's true. They, oh, yeah. And that pretty much shut him up, and because of their respect for John Ford, politics wasn't brought up ever again. Which is, yeah, I mean, I think that's pretty amazing. You know, there were there were rumors, like there are, of a lot of Hollywood figures of this time that he might have been closeted at the same time. He was married mm-hmm. to the same woman for 53 years, but Maureen O'Hara says she, in her autobiography, says she saw him with some men, you know, so... And that that could that could inform things as well. He was a complicated guy, but by all accounts, uh, brilliant and and uh, a witty conversationalist and just kind of a cool guy to be around uh, Mm -hmm. unless you're working for him. And then he's very mean to you, (laughs) which is which, again, is like one of those things he does as a means to an end. But I don't think I really ascribe to that style of directing personally. It's kind of the you know, the. The ber- like break your actors until something good comes out of it. I feel like you kind of need to just have some trust for your actors, but I don't no, know. exactly. Give give them a chance to actually do their job, and they will do the do their job for you. As opposed to actually, who is it? William Friedkin, who actually shot a gun on the set of The Exorcist or something like that. That's uh, right. To, yeah. To to really like, oh, I want to really scare them. Is like, well, don't fire a gun on set. There's acting. It's called acting. Yeah. Man. Yeah. <laughs> Like like Lawrence Olivier said to Dustin Hoffman, have you tried acting? Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, a little bit about the production of this movie. So Stagecoach is based on a short story by Ernest Haycox called The Stage to Lordsburg. That was published in 1937. Uh, Ford read that story in Collier's Magazine, and he snatched up the rights to it immediately. He thought it was a super cool idea. But he had trouble shopping the script around his studios because, like we said, the Western at this point was dead. Nobody was really wanting to put any money into making Westerns. The other problem, too, is that Ford was absolutely insistent that the lead role had to go to his longtime friend, John Wayne. And John Wayne, at this time, was a nobody. Uh, he, John Wayne, uh, real name, Marion Morrison. Uh, he was born uh, in the early 1900s in Iowa, moved to Southern California. He was on track to be a football player before he was injured in a surfing accident. And then he went, uh, kind of started picking up odd jobs at the Fox studio lot. He was spotted moving some furniture by a director once and was given the lead role in a movie called The Big Trail, which was at the time one of the most expensive productions in Hollywood history. It was a $2 million Western epic starring this guy that no one had ever heard of. And uh, uh, it flopped in a huge, huge way. And uh, John Wayne was just kind of persona non grata for a while. I mean, that's not really true. He worked steadily, but he he got supporting he was, roles. He, 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 yeah, he was not necessarily, he didn't blow up. This is, it's a terrible analogy, but... Uh, well, maybe not. I don't know. We'll see what you think. Uh, you can always edit <laughs> this out later. I always, I, I kind of, especially for how John, uh, John Wayne was filmed and how he was in this movie, this was kind of like his Guardians of the Galaxy, and he was Chris Pratt. Yeah. 
Like he had been working, he was kind of well known, but then he just went straight to the stratosphere right after Stagecoach was released. And he became such an A-list star afterwards. And I want to say it was one of the actors, I forget which one, it might have been Claire Trevor saying that, you know, this is your star-making role or this is your star-making movie, especially with that iconic shot of the the zoom in on him and he's cocking his gun, hold on there. And it's clearly a star is, is being made with just that one single shot. Oh, 100%. Like we were talking a couple weeks ago on when we were talking about Easy Rider, how like, Jack Nicholson mm. coming into the movie is just like this this trumpet blaring like bah this is a movie star right here and John mm. Wayne gets the same treatment here but this was not his first film this is in fact John Wayne's 80th movie 80 crazy can you crazy. imagine like i mean and he was 32 he was 32 mm-hmm. years old he was not like over the hill at this point he was a 32 year old man who'd been in 80 movies none of them had gone but he was just kind of like popping up in all these different things. And and uh, studios did not believe in him as a leading man. And that's why he doesn't have top billing in this movie. Claire Trevor was the bigger star at this time who plays Dallas. And she was given top billing over John Wayne, even though he is arguably the lead role. Um, but, you know, so he, he pushed that through. He finally made that happen. And uh, they started shooting in Monument Valley in Utah. And this was the first of seven different movies that John Ford shot in this location And actually, because of this movie, like dozens and dozens of Westerns have been shot in Monument Valley now, not just John Ford movies. It's kind of become what we think of as the Old West, like this one little area of Utah and like northern Arizona, like uh, pretty, pretty incredible. And like there weren't even any paved roads out to the location at the time. Mm -hmm, Like this was just very rustic. And uh, uh, but it became sort of the archetype for the West as far as like American culture is concerned. Oh, absolutely. Um, and it's it's stunning scenery, too. If anyone ever gets oh, yeah. a chance to go out to that part of the country, it is just beautiful. So I can see why people flock to it, because aside from it being just associated with the West, it's just such beautiful scenery. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And so it was a it was a tough shoot. You know, it was uh, out in the elements and, and in the cold and in the wind and in the rain and all of that. But eventually they got the movie in the can and they released it and it wound up being this surprisingly huge success. It had a modest budget of about $400,000 at the time, went on to make more than a million dollars, which would be 18, 19 million today. But again, considering how business was done in, in this time, like how small the budget was. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, this, you, we've, we've talked about 1939 being kind of, you know, some critics consider it one of the best years in Hollywood history. Uh, it was certainly one of the ones with the most attendance um, because Gone with the Wind came out that year, and it's still adjusted for inflation, the biggest movie of all time. Uh, you know, so they there just there wasn't ever anything that really kind of matched that. But people were going to movies more and more and more, and this was one of the reasons. So this went on to uh, be nominated for seven Oscars. It won two of them for uh, best score and best supporting actor for Thomas Mitchell. Uh, it launched John Wayne from an unbankable B-lister to the biggest name in Hollywood. And yeah, like in a very real way, it set the template for Westerns to come. But despite all this acclaim, the movie was actually very nearly lost forever. Uh, the film prints were all destroyed. And the only reason we have this movie today is because John Wayne had a copy of this that had never run through a projector before. He gave it to the AFI and they restored it. And now you can find this movie public domain anywhere. Um I will say, I don't know where you watched it. I tried watching it on Amazon Prime and then switched over to HBO Max. They're, they're using the Criterion print on HBO Max. The one on Amazon Prime uh, 
is a very, very, very dingy kind of public domain. Oh, uh, I wish uh, I would have known that because I, I actually watched it on Prime myself. Uh, just oh, I, yeah. That's the first place I, I, well, I first looked on YouTube just because I know that there were a couple of scenes I wanted to watch specifically. And it is available on YouTube, as you say, through mm-hmm. public domain. But if you want to get ads for Candy Crush or whatever every two minutes, as sure, I do. watch it on yeah. YouTube. But uh, that would just be infuriating. <laughs> Uh, but no, yeah, I, I watched love on, matching uh, up these candy pieces, Pilgrim. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or these weird ads I've been getting now for this game where you're you're a girl, you're a girl, your boyfriend's coming over, and you have to get ready, so you have to wax the eyebrow. I don't know what algorithm I got on where I got this, but I have to. It's literally a thing like, oh, wax eyebrows, take shower. There's stink marks coming out of here, and she looks like she's an anime. Uh, girl, very, but with like a beard like mine or yours, very thick and full. It's like, no, this, this is a terrible game. I don't want, I don't want this one. We're trying to then, you know, then I don't want to have to jump to that after, you know, Doc delivered the baby. I don't want to have to do that yeah. charge, so. <laughs> Oh no, we just have a, had a massive gunfight. I think we'd better stop and look at an ad for better health. You know, something like that. Oh, yeah, exactly. Just the most complete 180 change. Definitely a lot of options to watch this. I would say, yeah, track. If you have HBO Max, I would say that's Mm. the way to go if you want like the cleanest, nicest looking print of this. But yeah, we do owe John Wayne for for holding on to this movie. Uh, And I'm I'm glad it wasn't lost like a great deal of uh, John Ford's other movies. I'm sure a lot of John Wayne's earlier work, too, uh, probably in that regard, since I know he a lot of just the old B movies he made are probably lost to time as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. So, all right, let's jump into the movie a little bit. Um, So, yeah, like we said, this movie kind of sets a lot of the archetypes for what a Western would be. But even at this time, they're kind of playing in in character tropes like all of our characters here fit a specific bill. Like you said, there's the hooker with the heart of gold. There's the drunken doctor. There's the 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 wrangler. There's the gambler. There's the weak businessman. There's the angry businessman like all these different types are kind of in place already, and we we immediately kind of know who these people are. So this movie's structure is is one of my favorite ways of kind of driving. Like it was, it's one of my favorite dramatic engines. It's the idea of taking a disparate group of people, put them in close quarters in a dangerous situation, and watch their true natures come out. You know, that's kind of the idea that's that's been behind several things. And as much as this has influenced westerns, I think. This movie has had an invaluable impact on one genre of film in particular, and that's the disaster movie. Because I think every disaster movie, whether you're talking Poseidon Adventure to 2012, is going to follow a pretty similar format of this. We're going to have a bunch of characters. We think we know who they are at the beginning, and they'll gradually reveal their true colors as as time goes on. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it, with that, I think, as well, too, with it being that kind of an insular with the disaster having those character types, uh, I would also say it's almost a grand hotel movie in a kind of a way too, where all the characters mm. are going to be for the most part in one location. And so right. they're forced to, as you say, interact, their true colors come out, but it's confined to, for the most part, there's a few times when they go to rest and change the horses and uh, have some food. But for the most part, they are confined to this tight quarters of the stagecoach. And we see just how, that along with the paranoia of making sure they get to Lordsburg and the Apache Indians, how that kind of plays with their character types and how they deal with that extra stress and that extra uh, danger element that's in there too. Oh, absolutely. I think we're being set up in the early going to think that uh, Mrs. Mallory is going to be our main character. 
uh, just the way the characters kind of defer to her. And then it's a, it's a, it's a nice little kind of inverse of that, that our main characters really turn out to be Dallas uh, and uh, Ringo, who are kind of the two who are, you know, he's an ex-con, she's a prostitute who's just been run out of town by the Women's Decency League, you know, so... They're both people who are kind of outcasts, and and they're where our sympathies lie more than anyone else. And everyone in this stagecoach is an outcast to some degree or another. Uh, even Gatewood, who we find out is an outcast because he's trying to embezzle a lot of money from his business. Steal every dime, yeah. <laughs> I just want to—it never fails to amaze me that we have these tropes in movies as old as 1939. There's a character in a 1939 movie, this bloviating rich idiot, who's saying, we should run this country like a business. I, I know. I saw that, and I had to pause. I was laughing so hard. It's like, this is—like you said, it, some things just are as old as, as dust, I guess, as far ah. as stereotypes and tropes. It's just— run like a business and he's also like well this this they, they can't let the the soldiers stay defended we 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 pay the taxes on this property they should defend it they shouldn't leave defenseless people out here to, you know law and order law and order you know he's the only one who wants to proceed he's the only one who wants them to keep charging through this dangerous apache territory because it's serving his interest exactly you know he doesn't needs. give a shit about anyone else in there so again oh, Lord, this no. is a story from 1937 a film from 1939 this didn't even reach its perfection point of uh, 1989's Gremlins 2. You know, obviously, that was the greatest <laughs> indictment of Donald Trump there ever was. Uh, actually, no, not even that, because that's like a very affectionate indictment of Donald Trump. I would Trump say Back to the movie. I was going to say Back to the Future Part 2 would be the most serious indictment. Back to the Future. Because Biff is very much a, not a, not was going to say thinly, but not at all a thinly veiled uh, t- archetype of Donald, uh, or stereotype of Donald Trump parody, yeah. or whatever you might want to call it. Very much so. Very much so. so. It's one of those things that just never fails to amaze me that it's still going on. Oh, absolutely. Uh, but yes. And- so we meet our cast of characters here. Uh, I, I think when I think back on this movie, the big standout performance for me is always Thomas Mitchell. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think most people are familiar with him as Uncle Billy from It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, but this was his Oscar winning performance. And I think he kind of defined what I've come to think of as like a supporting actor performance from then on. It's usually like kind of a schlubbier character actor. Uh, He plays it funny, but also tragic. He's got a couple of really great pointed line deliveries and like doesn't overstay his welcome. Absolutely. Very serious at one moment, like the at the towards the end of the film when he's confronting the uh, the plumber, uh, Luke Plummer and his cronies. And, you know, you take that shotgun. uh, I'll indict you for the law. Just he he was actually intimidating he had me going oh don't don't screw with this guy he will really screw you up he but then immediately after the guy leaves he takes a drink he's like don't ever make me do that again so he's cutting it he's cutting it with a little bit of humor i think that's kind of this this is like the er like best supporting actor kind of thing this is what we look for in best supporting actors now well, and talking about 1939 being a year for Hollywood, this was a hell of a year for him as an actor, too, because I it didn't click in my head, but he was also uh, Scarlett O'Hara's father in Gone with the Wind. Oh, right. Yeah. So I he, think he's in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington as well. Yep, Am I he crazy is. About so, that? Yeah. No, he is. He had a... So this is a tremendous year for him as well, too. Uh, yeah. And he, yeah, became an archetype uh, as far as being a supporting actor. He's also the uh, second performer to win the Triple Crown of Acting after Helen Hayes. Oh, wow. Oh, that's amazing. I didn't really know that. I mean, yeah, I've always liked him. In, and he, this is the performance of his that always stands out to me. Uh, well, it's the scene in the movie. It's the part of the movie that always stands out to me, aside from John Wayne. 
yeah, so we have the doctor. We have uh, Mr. Peacock, who's kind of like a, a meek, uh, a meek Kansas City businessman. Everyone keeps calling him a reverend just because he's so soft spoken, but he's actually selling whiskey. Um, and we have uh, Mrs. Mallory, who's our, kind which of the our drunken the, doctor uh, is pretty much takes his entire supply throughout the movie. I love that. He's just kind of slow. At one point, he just says, please stop. And he just doesn't. Uh, <laughs> Throws yeah, the bottle Mr. out, gets another one. Oh, yeah. We get Mr. Gaywood, the rich man. We get Dallas, the the uh, prostitute. We get uh, Mrs. Mallory, who's going to a fort to visit her soldier husband. She's pregnant. Uh, we have Buck, the carriage driver. And we have Curly, the sheriff. Uh, and so there's this great, you know, this, this I like the way that they establish the re- relationship between Ringo, uh, John Wayne's character, and this sheriff. Like, they're both, they, they neither of them have any delusions about which sides of the law they're on, you know? Like, Ringo has broken out of jail for the express intent to go hunt down and kill somebody. You know, so, like, that's not something that Curly can ignore, but he also recognizes that Ringo's a good guy to have in a pinch and, like, that he's a, he's a genuinely a, a good person, like, off to kind of do a bad thing. Uh, and so having having Curly's, like, endorsement of him sort of helps a little bit, even if there is a little bit of wariness to uh, uh, having him in the carriage. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, exactly. Buck is great because it's it's Andy Devine who played uh, Friar Tuck in the Disney Robin Hood. I know. I, that voice is so recognizable. Just one of those old Western <laughs> trope character actors who just like pops up and everything and yeah oh i gotta well, drive the horses well howdy or well when the baby comes in well i'll be now whatever it is and then do the try oh, to distract yeah, yeah, and the, say hi to the, the baby now that he also uh speaking of his entire thing as well too where he's got a th- uh as far as john ford's behavior being very uh, kind of anti uh antagonistic towards the cast Uh, I know there's a story, and this is per IMDb trivia, having looked it up, and I copied it because it was just such a good one, where John Ford was yelling at Andy Devine, uh, saying, you know, you're a big tub of lard. I don't know why the hell I use you in a picture like this. To which uh, Devine replied, undaunted, because Ward Bond can't drive six horses. (laughs) That's nice. I like that. I like that. Uh, The other key character in here is John Carradine playing uh, Mr. Hatfield, who is kind of a mysterious Southern gambler. Uh, and man, John Carradine's got like a face on him. It's really, I never really noticed it before. It's like, man, that man is like, it's very gaunt and angular. He looks like he's been carved and not necessarily like by a professional, like, but he's, he's got something like very watchable about him. Very distinctive, very sharp. And your eye is instantly drawn to him where he has a very kind of a sinister way about him or just a very mysterious way. It's very striking from the very beginning. It's, you know, you do not miss him when you first see Hatfield. And it's also like, he's one of these characters that we think we have him wired when he comes onto the screen. And then as the movie goes on, we start to see more and more layers of him and that he might be one of the more trustworthy elements in this van, in this uh, caravan, you know, even thinking about how he he makes it clear that he fought for the South during the Confederacy, you know, which is now, you know, the, the Civil War is over at this time, but tensions are still kind of very much there. Um, so they're all bound together in this stagecoach heading for Lordsburg in Arizona. And, uh, you know, so they've all got their various reasons for needing to get there. But there's this specter looming over this entire journey, and that is that Geronimo and his Apaches are on the warpath and they've been attacking settlements along the way. And in my head, like when I was looking back on thinking when I first saw this movie, 
I remember this being like them almost constantly under attack. Like I remember it being like a, a almost 90 minute long like chase sequence. And that's really only like the 10, 15 minutes in the, the last third of the movie. Uh, but at the same time, this kind of idea of the Apaches like looms large over this entire movie. And that's also something I wanted to address too, because with with all the positive things that you could say about the Western genre, its depiction of Native Americans is not amongst them. Uh, the, the this typical, one especially. Yeah, this the, one especially. Yeah. It's, it's very... They're just treated just not even as savages. That's just all they're labeled as. That's just yeah. all they are regarded. And even then there's the scene uh, where they are in one of the uh, one of the towns getting fresh horses where there is the stereotypical uh, Mexican innkeeper. And happens to have a, a says, oh, that's my squaw wife. And mm-hmm. Mr. Peacock sees her and then immediately freaks out and starts screaming, savage, savage. And it's uh, that was a very cringy moment. Right. It's and it's and it's in, what's interesting to me in that regard, if I'm sorry to kind of go off on this. But what's interesting is even though this there was this depiction, as far as looking up the history of the production of this most of the actors who did play, most of the people who were playing Apaches were actually Native American actors and they, they were. were paid union scale back in the day for their work. So they were paid almost as much as you, well, not almost, they were paid actually what would be considered an honest, not an honest, that's not the right word, but a a good wage for doing their work on this film. And that was just kind of a surprising thing for me, I found out, considering just how uh, horrible the view is otherwise. Well, and as we get along in Hollywood history, like we'll see less and less of that. You'll we'll see fewer and fewer actual natives being cast in these roles. You know, like the main antagonist of the Searchers is an Italian man, like in in darker brown face. You know, like kind of kind of you know that seems to be the way it goes. You know, and th- this movie, the the Apaches are not generally seen. We don't really get to spend any time with them or or sympathize with their plight or anything like that. They're just kind of seen as this invading evil force, which is a bummer. And it's it's something that like I wish, you know, I don't know if there's room for nuance in this story, uh, but I feel like there could have been. I feel like there could have been some kind of way of addressing this where they aren't just kind of these boogeymen. Just right, not just being a one-note villain of oh, these are just the uncultured savages or whatever you want to, whatever that they decide to call them. The fact that oh, the, they're they're you're on land that has been stolen from them or whatever the case. You know, there's so many different re- so many different reasons why they could actually be going after them and why they could actually be trying to take the stagecoach down. Besides just being stock uh, villains, yeah, being stock bad guys. A hundred percent. But it does all culminate in a very, uh, a, a really well accomplished like stunt sequence of the stagecoach being attacked. We've got these really incredible uh, horse stunts of like actors like jumping from horse to horse on the carriages. Uh, one time, he, uh, a character gets shot and like falls underneath the wagon, and like really incredibly dangerous stunts to be doing at any time, especially in nineteen thirty nine. Well, in the uh, cinematography of it, too, that I know the shot you're referring to, yeah, where he falls and then the stagecoach rides over him. And then there's two or three different uh, Apaches on horses that ride over the exact same shot as well. It's a dangerous shot to get, but it was just so effective. It was just such a really good one for keep getting the tension and making it so it's very pulse pounding with yeah. oh, this is a, a very dangerous situation they're in, obviously. 
And they do a great job of uh, uh, introducing the conflict. Like, this, it's been hanging over the movie this entire time. And the way that things are announced is with just a sudden arrow coming through the window and hitting Mr. Peacock, who is the most innocent amongst them. He is the one that, like, uh, has... You know, he, he's he's the, the one that's most vulnerable, and this is kind of raising the stakes. It's like, oh, shit, okay, this guy's in trouble now. So, you know, uh, they, they survive this attack, uh, except for Mr. Hatfield, who winds up being the only one who doesn't make it. But uh, really, the attack is kind of, you know, it, it's, it's just one small moment in the whole movie. I do want to backtrack a little bit and talk about John Wayne's introduction. We touched on it a little bit, but... Man, so few people get such a great, amazing, like, movie star opening as John Wayne gets in this. And it feels like a very intentional thing that uh, Ford is doing. He's been, he'd been friends with John Wayne for years, and he'd, he'd always said he would cast him in the lead role for something when he was ready. And I think this is him saying, like, yep, you're ready. All right, I'm going to give you your moment. So the character is talked about for, like, the first 15 minutes of the movie. He's talked about, talked about, talked about. Yeah, you don't even we... see him for the first... He's not even in the movie for the first, like you said, 15 minutes. That's just such a big build-up to him. Yeah. And then when we meet him, he's just this big, tall dude holding a rifle and a, sh uh, a saddle, and the camera zooms in real close on him, this big epic hero shot. Like, we don't get these big zooms on any other characters during this time, you know? They they're all just kind of introduced flatly. But this is kind of like, hey, hey, pay attention, America. This guy is going to be running your movie theaters for the next fifty years. You know, like just pretty just, much. Just pay attention, like that. And <laughs> and uh, it, it's a cool introduction. It's a really cool way to introduce him. And I think Wayne is really laying on the charm in this movie in a way that he doesn't really later in his career. Like, I I, I like a lot of John Wayne movies. I've never said that like John Wayne is a favorite performer of mine. I think because he does tend to get lazy. He, he was one of those actors who found a niche that worked for him and he kind of just, you know, showed up, said his lines and left. And it's it's always nice to see him in a role where he's really trying. And I think this is that I think this is him bringing all of his his charm and his charisma to bear. And I, th I think that's it's a shame, too, in the fact because seeing this, I was really struck by just the fact that, oh, he actually is a, a very talented performer because there are just some yeah. soft moments, especially when he's with Dallas where it's not just being the the big brooding man type it's actually you know there's a lot more to him than that there's a lot more to Ringo than just this outlaw and there's a little bit more complexity especially with John Wayne just conveying a lot with his eyes that I like you said don't think that we get a chance to really see much of else uh, from him except for I would say probably the searchers uh, yeah. which is uh, you know another Fan, just, I think that's his absolute best acting performance, and it's a shame that he oh, didn't yeah. get any more recognition for it. But in this one, yeah, you can see, yes, he's a big, he does play himself quite a bit, but no, he actually is a, a, a good and talented actor if he's pushed and if he actually does the work himself. Absolutely, absolutely. And you can tell he's kind of operating as if like, all right, this is my shot. Everyone's saying this is my shot. Like, he's building this movie around me. I'm not going to blow it. Like, this is my chance to kind of show the world, like, this is what you get when you have me as the, your, your leading man. And I think he really does a great job of selling us on the idea of John Wayne movie star, uh, which, which really works well. Uh, I was surprised. Like, I think I'd forgotten that so much of the last uh, act of the movie takes place. It involves him like uh, his squaring off with the plumbers. Like, I guess I me just too. thought that that was going to be kind of his character motivation for getting there. And then we weren't really going to see much resolution off of that. But yeah, a lot of the last act of the movie 
is him uh, getting ready to have this gunfight with the plumbers, these uh, this gang of brothers who killed his family. Um, I don't know. Like this took me out a little bit. I, I think I, I enjoy all the stuff in the in the coach with all the supporting characters more, I suppose. But like, I don't know. What do you think about this part? I agree the same too because the everything uh, with the uh, with the plumber brothers, it seemed very much like it was like an extended director's cut. Like, let's right. just throw a few more scenes in there to what they uh, just to kind of uh, the true vision of what was originally intended for the story, maybe. But it. Yeah, it just it didn't feel tacked on, but it was I was not nearly as enthralled or as kind of on the edge of my seat as I was for that than during the entire stagecoach sequence, especially for the last few minutes during the Apache uh, chase. Just because that there was such a, a stronger sense of danger, such a stronger sense of uh, tension. This one, it just you know you're not going to give John Wayne such a big zoom in shot like that and then have him get killed off screen by. Uh, you know, three po- by three podunk Western stock uh, villain characters. You're just not going to do that. So there was not that element to the shootout to me. Uh, yeah, it kind of did take me out. Absolutely. Well. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I think, and maybe it's just because it's falling too much into. Uh, I don't know. Too, it's become too tropey at this point. You know, I, I think I enjoyed more of the. Uh, the bottle episode, the, the closet drama of like all of these characters trapped in the same carriage and like kind of learning to get along and learning to get by. Like, I think I found that and those character dynamics a little bit more appealing than what's going on with Ringo and the plumbers at the end. Um, and and a lot of the characters do just get kind of shuffled off screen. You know, they just, uh, uh, you know, the Mrs. Mallory just goes into the hospital and we don't see Mm -hmm. her again. Mr. Peacock, we don't see him again, you know? He gets so, off. Yeah, we don't. The same thing too for Buck. Buck kind of wanders off. The sheriff mm-hmm. and uh, the doc and Dallas are pretty much the only ones who we really see from again or stay with Ringo throughout this entire thing. And then, uh, yeah, you know, Ringo and Dallas do get their moment where they they're not riding off in the sunset, riding off in the the moonset, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Know, but uh, which does give the nice moment of the doc of uh, Doc and uh, the sheriff having a kind of a nice buddy buddy moment at the end with a great line of I'll buy you a drink well just a small one yeah but, yeah 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 but I agree it's not it becoming too tropey I think that's a great that's a great way of putting it it's too much at that point I think I think so I don't know uh, and again not bad not a bad movie at all uh not you know it, it ties it together pretty well uh I did find out that there were a couple of remakes of this movie which I was not aware of. There's a 1966 version with Anne Margaret as Dallas uh and I think it has Bing Crosby playing Doc. Um, yeah, Bing Crosby plays Doc. Uh trying to remember who else is in it, but uh the the other one, the one from 89 with like all of the outlaw country stars playing all the characters. I have seen that one. Oh, you've actually seen that one. That that's I what, did. so that that's uh, um it's from 1986. I just found that That's here. It. It's uh, it's it. Willie Nelson and Johnny Cash, Chris Christopherson, Waylon Jennings. Uh, so the Highwaymen basically playing the cast of Stagecoach. Pretty much. Um, There's also some cameos. Uh, June Carter Cash shows shows up, and so does David Allen Cole. Oh wow! And weirdly enough, Willie Nelson plays Doc Holliday. Oh weird. Okay. So it's he's not like, even like. Yeah, no, it's kind of shoehorned in with him. It's like it's kind of fun to see these country singers in a movie, you know, in an in an actual old west movie, just for that regard. But otherwise, it's just kind of eh, the the original was just so much better. And this was a it, it, it was like a TV movie, right? Like, I'm, yep, I'm exactly. We, yeah, yeah. I remember my parents recorded it uh, on the on VHS, and 
that was uh, played fairly frequently. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> I mean, yeah, knowing knowing your parents, like I can imagine that would be very much oh, yeah. in the rotation. Oh yeah, it's, yeah. So yeah, it was it was fun for a lark to see it, but it's one that uh, I sensed. I can't remember where I picked it up not too long ago, but I picked it up and. Uh, not the VHS. It was, I think, a, a DVD or it was on a streaming site that is now bit in the dust. But it, you know, if you got a chance to see the original or the TV movie, go see the original. Just, yeah. D- just don't even bother. <laughs> the TV movie feels like something that would be on Tubi. Like if anything would be on Tubi, that that feels <laughs> like it would be on there. They're, they're, it's such a great, weird repository for like old made-for-TV movies. I've kind of been liking it for that. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. as we as we found ourselves when we were just trying to find cartoons for my daughter, you can just search for something and then you'll get the weirdest streaming site that you can just add to your Roku. Yeah. And you never know what you'll find. Exactly. Yeah, it's... But yeah, it's the the yeah the original is just the 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 one the 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 remake with Bing Crosby and Anne Bancroft does have Anne Bancroft uh, and Margaret, Margaret and Margaret yeah yeah and Margaret does have there are some fun there are some good moments to it but it's still uh, just doesn't even hold a candle to the original. Absolutely, um, I think that's kind of about all I had about Stagecoach. Did you have any final thoughts about the movie before we wrap up? Uh, this one, it's just so interesting, uh, as we kind of talked about with all the different cliches that uh, are tossed in there with this being a, a one where kind of it's like cliche zero, cliche prime, where there's so many different things that come in there. But it's also to me interesting how it kind of spins a, f- a bit of them on their head where, yes, you've got the the hooker and the outlaw and the drunk. Uh, you've got the gambler, but they all have a moment of going again not maybe not going against type but just subverting the cliche because dallas ends up becoming the most maternal uh of the two females that are on the uh, stagecoach she is the one who's holding the baby i know uh of course that uh you know mrs mallory is still sick and bedridden Mm -hmm. but she becomes very maternal we see that the outlaw ringo kid actually is uh just trying to do right by his family. He's not bloodthirsty or he's not out for just killing to, for the sake of killing Doc no. Boone. Yes. He's a, yes, he's a drunk, but he, if you sober him up, he is competent. He is a, uh, always will going to jump in and do what's right. And yeah, I was really struck this time again, just watching Hatfield, uh, and just his progression and how, he was treated as a character and that final moment, since he's the only one who does get shot where he does say uh, to it, was it his father? I think that what, yeah, he, yeah that, yeah, that moment was, we just get that, that little was, moment where we learned that the, the little tin cup that he had in his pocket was because he is the disgraced son of like a wealthy family, you know? And like that, that he's, that's, that's his family and that's his heritage. And yeah, I like the way the little interesting little bits of story were parsed out. Like one last thing I'll say is like thinking about Thomas Mitchell's performance. There's a moment where he comes out after the baby is born. You know, he's just gone from like blackout drunk to having to deliver a baby. And he comes out after the delivery and it's a successful delivery. But there's a look on his face where it's like it's it's shell shock. It's like he's he's everyone around him is kind of celebrating, but he's not quite ready to let himself yet because he knows how close it came to being a really bad situation. And like, you can see a little bit of reflection in him in that. And then it fades with the pressure to have a drink, you know, but again, it's just a really quiet moment that plays across Mitchell's face in that moment. That uh, is really good. 
Oh yeah, no, it, it's it's small little moments like that that really you can kind of maybe get lo- that might get lost in a in a. Uh, especially in sometimes where movies may not have been so subtle back then and with, with just such big, broad stereotypes. But I think with John, especially of John Ford, you know, he was a very demanding director, but he got some, got quite a few good performances out of his actors. He definitely did. Absolutely. Well, yeah. thank you so, so much for being here and talking about this movie. I had so My much pleasure. fun revisiting it. Uh, this is, this is a pretty great one. If you want to track it down, like I said, it's available pretty much anywhere. HBO Max is probably going to be your best bet if you want a nice high quality print of this. But if you're if you're interested in westerns at all, if you'd like to uh, uh, you know see kind of where the modern western mythos comes from, or if you just want a nice counterpart to last week's movie El Topo, uh, I think this is a, this is a really great way to kind of uh, unwind from that. And it's um, short. So, and it's short. It's a ninety that's, minute movie. That's why I was surprised. I was pleasantly surprised how quickly. At not saying that. It, that's a bad thing, but it no. was not, it flew by and I didn't feel like I was being cheated at all. It was just, wow, this is absolutely, this is quick. It's over. Already. Yeah, wow. for sure. Um, so Luke, do you have anything to plug or anything to promote that people can find you? Oh, if you really want to find me, uh, you can on Twitter. I'll have to look up my handle here real quick. Uh, <laughs> I just some idle musings on that, but I will say that me and my wife do have our own podcast. Uh, that is called the cat who did a podcast, we are reading all of the Cat Who Murder Mystery series books by Lillian Jackson Braun and having a discussion mm-hmm. about it. If you were to just search on Overcast or Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts for the Cat Who Did a Podcast, you will find us there. Most recent episode is The Cat Who Did a Cardinal, which has quite a bit of uh, theater references, which always make me think of you whenever we <laughs> uh, talk about certain old school shows. Oh, yes, very much so. I, I, as someone who worked in a bookstore, I'm amazed at how many of these uh, cat-related mysteries there are, not just by Lillian Jackson Braun. There are, like, multiple series about murder-solving animals, uh, it's and a apparently whole cats are really good at it. Oh, yeah, it's <laughs> a whole whole subgenre of murder of uh, murder mysteries, but I think eh, we're, we're kind of biased, but we think Lillian Jackson Braun did it best. Oh, I, I have to imagine so. That sounds <laughs> incredibly fun. Yeah, definitely check that out. The Cat Who Did a Podcast. Uh, you can find us at Rogers List Pod at Twitter and Instagram, and that's our email address. You know what? Hey, uh, hop over to iTunes. Give us a rating and a review. It really kind of helps us uh, uh, get out there a little bit. Next week, we are pivoting again. We're going uh, from the Old West to 1960s France. We're going to be talking about Francois Truffaut's Day for Night, uh, French new wave film. And, uh, I've seen this before. It's one of, one of the most fun French new wave films. If that, if, if that applies, at least in my memory, and it's a movie all about making movies. So if you're really into that kind of idea, it's really fun day for night, also called La Nuit Americaine. And, uh, <laughs> we will be discussing that next week. So I'm looking forward to digging into that one. Luke, thank you so much again, buddy. It's always so good to see you. Uh, you as well, I'm, my friend. I'm thank you. Have you on. Um, So we will see you next time as we ride off into the sunset. Good night, everybody.